Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. Today I spoke to Mike Grinberg. Mike is a marketing pro who shares his story having a baby girl born at 11 ounces. It's not pounds, it's less than one pound, 11 ounces. He shares how he and his wife began raising their precious little girl and eventually started their own marketing firm together to provide the flexibility to care for her together from home. We then went into his life story and approach to parenting. Now, if you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. The next episodes will include an agility consultant, a technology salesman, a UFC fighter, a famous YouTuber, and a well-known OBGYN doc. I'll talk with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and philosophies, and of course their approach to being dads. All right, it is now time to hear from Mike Grinberg. Enjoy. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, man, we've got a lot to talk about. So you've uh, you're an entrepreneur, and um, you've had a, a daughter that was born extremely premature, and you're also a podcaster. So really looking forward to yeah. hearing from you, man. Yeah, glad to chat about all of those things. So um, as far as I understand, the the company was kind of um, born out of uh, the necessity of you having a daughter extremely premature, can we kind of start there and you can kind of walk us through the story of the the pregnancy and delivery and, and early days of uh, your daughter? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely, the, the company definitely was born out of, what we say it was born out of a family crisis. Um, so in August of 2015, our daughter was born uh four months early she weighed uh she was born at 24 weeks gestation she weighed about 330 grams that's 11 ounces uh so you know less than a pop can i kind of say people can sort of people don't know how to respond to that and i say pick up your phone that's about the weight and the size um so we spent it was definitely touch and go initially we spent about six months in the NICU she's five and a half now she's doing amazing she's a miracle baby so you know, things are good now but uh pretty quickly pretty quickly after she was born um i was working for a a great company they were very understanding you know that i traveled a little bit less than i was prior to the birth uh, and they let me work from the hospital a few days a week but it was still very clear that it was just it was too demanding and as, as flexible as they were willing to be it just wasn't enough um and add on top of that also um, my wife had, she was let go from her job. She was pretty much a team of one, uh, at a startup at this point as, as the birth happened and she got let go. Um, and so we kind of went from a double income to a single income. And that was the other reason why I needed to move on because we just needed to make more money. So I switched jobs, went to work for a, for a local energy startup, pretty much no travel, much more flexible, it's closer to home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And then about a year into that, that company lost funding and it was about to go bankrupt. And I was already consulting on the side anyway to make up the difference, if you will, on the income side. And our daughter at that point was about uh, 22 months. And Gabby, my wife, was getting ready to go back to work. And we were trying to decide how we were going to do it. You know, she, our daughter, Lana, still needed a bunch of um, support at home. And she was, uh, at that point, I think just got off uh, continuous oxygen at home, but lots of therapy appointments and all sorts of stuff. So at at 22 months, got off of continuous oxygen. Yep. Yeah. So we can, uh, we can talk about that. So the pretty much any time a child is born as early as Lana is just about anybody that's born under, you know, roughly, I think, what is it like 28 weeks, they're going to need some sort of oxygen and, and, and ventilation support because the lungs aren't done developing at that point. And especially if they're born as early as Lana was, um, the lungs don't function at all, pretty much. They, they're sticky and they can't open, right? So you need ventilation support to be able to um, live, really. Uh, and then because of that, when, and this is actually really pertinent to the times we're living in now with COVID, uh, what people don't realize is while ventilation is life-saving, it also completely destroys your lungs. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I exaggerate a little bit, but uh, it, it does. It damages your lungs, right? Because it's not natural the way it, the way it works. So it the, the pressure just destroys the, really damages the lungs, which means most of the time, you know, long-term lung capacity is impacted. It's not, I mean, heck, people can live with one lung, right? So it's not that bad for her by any means. I mean, she, you know, our daughter, she runs around now. She's fine. But it took a while before she could be off oxygen completely. Um, so anyway, going back to what I was talking about, it was about 22 months. She still needed a bunch of support and we kind of looked at each other and said, well, we got two options. We can either both go out and get corporate gigs uh, and figure out how the heck we would make this work with, you know, trying to support our daughter who's at home. And, you know, we, we were pretty much told when we left the hospital, like, don't put her in a daycare because the, like, if she gets sick at that point, at least it's, you know, you're pretty much guaranteed trip back to the hospital with some sort of lung problem. So anyway, long story short, we decided, or we, the other option was take my, I think I had like three marketing consulting clients at the time. They were small, take those, go all in, you know, build a marketing agency and and a remote marketing agency at that and do that, which is what we did. So three and a half years later, here we are, we got Couple employees, a number of a number of long term contractors, you know, a bunch of clients. So, wow, that's that's how the company came to be. And what I've observed often with people who get into entrepreneurship is that the first few years, the workload is insane, much more so than being an employee. And so, with your need for flexibility and and probably needing some extra hours to devote to family how was that how's that journey been for you i mean it hasn't been without its hiccups but uh you know i'd be lying if i said we did it all by ourselves we did we had you know they they say it takes a village and we've had a pretty large village um i mean my both my parents and gabby's parents are both live here in minneapolis locally so they've been able to help uh, and then once we both went all in on the business, we got a full-time nanny. 
So for about two years, we had a full-time nanny at home. So we were still at home to be able to help with questions, medications, appointments, whatever. But uh, Lana had a full-time caregiver that was with her so that we could get worked up, you know. But we, at the same time, were able to go downstairs and have lunch together. Or, you know, when she was that little, she would crawl up the stairs or walk up the stairs and come and say hi to us in the middle of work, which is great. And we were able to spend, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, that kind of thing, which I think was crucial at that time. Um, sure. But yeah, the, you know, the work was definitely, you know, we were both building the agency as well as building processes and servicing clients and whatnot. I mean, we're still, we're still doing some of that now. We're not huge. And, you know, we did get kind of spanked, if you will, by COVID a little bit, but we're recovering from that now. Um, but yeah, the first, the first few years was, it wasn't easy for sure, but it, uh, there's no way that I think we could have had done what we've done in terms of supporting our daughter while working for somebody else. Right. That's good. Is there a point where after a certain number of weeks or months or years, a daughter that's born that premature, it's like, okay, at this point now she's pretty much normal and caught up to someone who had been born at normal um, gestation period, or is it, is she always a little bit behind in certain areas? Like, I don't know what that looks like biologically. That's a, that's a good question. So, um, the the short answer is it depends. Um, the long answer is, and and yes, I guess. So in the, what I mean by that is um, it depends on the s- severity of the situation, right? Now, we got lucky while her lungs were obviously impacted. Mentally and physically, she was perfectly fine, right? I mean, she's got, you know, she's a little bit behind physically still. Like, she's got lower muscle tone, things like that, which is very typical of... Um, of premature uh, kids, but if you looked at her, you'd think she's just a normal, normal kid. Like you know, she runs around, she plays, she jumps, whatever. I mean, she's still got. You know, we're doing. She does like physical therapy and and um, occupational therapy, but it's she's definitely catching up. And for the most part, it, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So, a, a child like her, the older they get, the less difference you notice, if any at all. Okay, um, so there, there, she's like slowly catching up to the point where yeah. as a teenager or adult you would never know that she was a preemie from like at least muscle tone perspective yeah well and like even right now i the vast majority of people unless they've been around preemies they wouldn't know okay so um and and the thing is because of how she was brought up i mean we pretty much had her isolated for about two years so you know only like close family and friends came over to the house we didn't go anywhere just because her immune system was so fragile and lungs are so fragile, especially in the winters, like flu season and whatnot, where oh, yeah. it was just too dangerous to even risk a cold because a cold can send you back months or years and then end you back in the hospital for weeks or whatnot. And then, you know, we did end up back in the hospital about two years in for about two weeks and it was pretty rough. Um, oh, sure. so yeah, she ended up with, uh, with a case of, I think it was RSV or, uh, or, uh, some sort of res- upper respiratory thing. So um, uh, I got just I got a little off track there, but uh, long story short, you know, like a child like her, at the end of the day, we don't exactly, the long answer is kind of, and the more complicated answer is you don't really know, right? Because she still has some things like uh, the main thing with, 
with our daughter is we've she still has a feeding tube. Now she eats mostly orally at this point, um, but she still needs some supplemental nutrition and some medications that she just won't take by mouth. So we got to use the tube. Kind of thing. That's probably the mm-hmm. big, the big physical difference. Um, but again, you can't see it. You know, it's a little button, if you will, under under all her clothes, so you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, Right. But again, the kids are different. I mean, we've, you know, we had, when we were in the hospital, we sort of became friends with a couple other couples that had kids born at roughly the same age. And unfortunately the, you know, the other ones weren't nearly as lucky as we were in the sense of, I think one ended up, both of them ended up with some pretty severe uh, mental delays in their permanent. Right. So it, it really just depends. Wow. Cause when, when babies are that little, the, the likelihood of something serious happening is pretty high. Um, like when it, it's better, like even in the last over whatever, five years adva- advances in neonatal medicine have definitely helped. But when, like when Lana was born, they told us that uh, like before her birth, before we had to do uh, do the emergency c- C-section, the doctor kind of gave us the numbers and it was like, you know, the chance of a normal quality of life was like 20 to 30% only. Um, so we did, she definitely has beaten the odds, if you will. Wow. <clears throat> and it seems like being less born at less than a pound, that's got to be on the extreme end of the bell curve, even for premature oh, yeah. babies, right? Like that, what I'm assuming that's like one of the, five percent most extreme cases or maybe even it's definitely the one percent i mean she's if you because the thing is prematurity is really anything i'm trying to remember the exact definition i think it's anything less than 36 weeks just is considered premature so if you consider she was born at 24 it's definitely in that kind of top you know top point one percent probably i'm not sure i've never looked at the numbers to be honest but it's uh she's on there's a there's a list of like the smallest preemies ever born kind of like a registry somewhere. And I think she's I don't know, number 37, like 137 or something on that list. Wow. Uh, something like that. And it's like a monument. I mean, a kind of an exponential difference between 24 yeah. weeks and 30 weeks and 36 and 40, you know, like all along there. It's At uh, that point, what they tell you is every day that the the baby can kind of, stay in and keep baking is huge difference um they they do pretty much at that point um the doctors will there's a there's something that's called an antepartum wing most people don't even know that exists but it's pretty much for women for one reason or another that they're trying to delay delivery uh so not postpartum but antepartum so we were there for about a week and in that week most most likely had we had to deliver pretty much immediately we wouldn't you know we we probably wouldn't be having this conversation um but that week made a huge difference because they do kind of everything they can so like they give steroid shots that um try to expedite um um uh, lung development and things like that for the for the child obviously wow so that's crazy i had no idea Ooh. Yeah, so, we we say we we've uh, we're not doctors, but we play but we play them on TV like with all the with all the stuff that we've been through <laughs> at this point. Yeah, it's a, a few episodes ago, I had one of my old buddies on. He was talking about um, 
some serious challenges with his son. Um, he needed open heart surgery right after mm-hmm. birth. And uh, he started, he's like, he had a case of this and that. And he rattles off these, uh, you know, technical medical terms. And it's funny, um, you know, he's I would like you no doctor, but certainly um, has a deep knowledge of that sector relative to someone who hasn't been through that type of experience. Yep. So amazingly, your daughter is sounds like she's doing great five years old. And that's so cool. I mean, you wouldn't even know that what she's been through, but she's already been through some serious battles. (laughs) She definitely has. And uh, I'm I'm sure I'm sure it's affected her and, you know, one one way, shape or form. But, uh, you know, like I said, you wouldn't really you wouldn't really know it. Good. And good for you guys. And it's amazing, too, that we live in a time that you can have antipartum support and be the, you know, at no other time in history could you probably have a baby at 24 weeks, right? I mean, and, and she's going to turn into a um, a wonderful adult, you know? Like, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing to throw out there, though, is like, yes, it's great that we have all these advances, but the reality is that maternal health even in the in a country like ours is so behind and so backwards it's crazy so the the my wife gabby got um she got misdiagnosed twice by her ob like i mean really it's it's lucky that we're, again it's lucky that we're having this conversation for a variety of reasons not least of which is that had i not convinced her to go to the hospital she probably would end up having a stroke and neither, you know neither of them might be here at this point because she complained of symptoms and like, oh, you probably, you know, don't worry about it. You're just kind of a typical overreacting female kind of thing. It was, you know, of course, it was a male, older male doctor, yada, yada. But um, so like there's the while the, the technology is great and there's advances in neonatal health, I think maternal health can definitely use some more uh, some more help. So you just insisted, hey, I think there's something to these symptoms and and kept investigating and kind of escalating to a specialist? Uh, well, so, yeah, I mean, pretty much, you know, there she was having trouble at pretty much starting at. Uh, so we knew that we were high risk already. So we, we already knew there was something going on. We just didn't know what, but she was feeling fine. Uh, we, we knew that ever since the 20 week ultrasound. Uh, but then right around. 22 weeks, she started having some severe symptoms, um, like some pain and discomfort, et cetera. And I was like, okay, we'll just call the doc. You know, no need to brave it. We already know something's going on. Call them. And she did. And we even get, we even came, went in and she got checked out once and they sent us home. Um, then she felt better. And we literally, there's a, a, like a big art fair that happens here in the summer. It was August. Uh, and we all went. She was feeling fine, but then that same night or the day after, whatever, she started feeling really crappy again. And we called the doc again, like, oh, no, it's, you know, nothing to worry about. This is normal. It's, you know, your body changing, expanding, making room for the baby. Everything's good. All right. Uh, But then that night, she couldn't sleep. Uh, Long story short, was just feeling the crap. Woke me up at about, um, and I was still working, so I I needed to get sleep because I, I needed to get to work the next morning. Um, woke me up at like four o'clock in the morning going, hey, I can't, you know, I'm having trouble breathing, something, whatever. I'm like, okay, get, get in the car, we're going. Because um, we, we called the doc and they they still said like, 
you know, don't worry about it. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't believe that. So got in the car, went to the hospital. And um, the interesting thing is that that OB happened to be the one rounding that night. And the look on his face when he saw us there was like, crap, I screwed up. Like we, we probably had a, a, a good malpractice case in our hands. We just, you know, we weren't even thinking about it that, at that point. Yeah. Wow. So then you go in, they investigate and, and get a. They investigate and pretty much right, right away. Like they, they knew what she had. Cause she had her blood pressure was like 195 over 120 or whatever. It was insanely high. Um, so, cause that's it was, what she had was preeclampsia and help syndrome. So it's like the body is fighting off the, the pregnancy pretty much. And the only way to cure it is to deliver. Um, and they always have to kind of play this game of, okay, how long can we keep this baby in without, you know, putting the mom in danger kind of thing. Oh man, that is a terrible spot to be in. Ooh, Cause you don't want to, you, you, you can't endanger your wife, but <laughs> yep. every hour makes a difference for the baby too. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. How, what do you like? How do they present that to you, and and what are you thinking about when that's going on? You know, the I'm pretty sure they did this on purpose. Like they were very, I don't want to say nonchalant about it, but sort of like this is what's going on. This is what it, they were just very kind of straightforward, but very calm, right? So I was like, yeah, in the back of my head, I know, like I was, I knew that it was a lot more serious, just because, like, I, just knowing the blood pressure, number, I'm like, okay, this is not like a normal thing. This is severe. Uh, and I mean, they did say at one point, like, Hey, we got to give you this medication. Cause if we don't, and your blood pressure stays this high, you could have a stroke. Like, okay. That's not good. Um, I honestly can't tell you exactly what's going on through my head because what, you know, I'm pretty sure I had some form of PTSD from it. Like not like severe to the point where I couldn't function by any means, but like, right. I, it's just blocked from my brain. Like I remember it happening. Like, and I can remember certain things like like the look on that uh, OB doctor's face when he walked into the, the room when we were getting checked in. I remember that pretty clearly. So I wanted to tear his head off. Um, but the rest of it, I, I can't remember what uh, exactly what I was thinking other than probably, holy crap. Yeah. yeah. It is a weird feeling when you're there and you you know the medical professionals are trying to be calm. They don't want to indicate the severity of the situation in, in one sense, but you all, you're picking things up like, okay, this is getting serious. That, that when you're saying that, it reminds me of uh, my first child when, when he was coming, my wife was in labor, like all day pushing for several hours um, right on the verge. And um, he wouldn't come out cord was wrapped around his neck, his blood, pre his uh, pulse was dropping. Mm -hmm. And and it's looking like freaking scary. And the doctor's like, well, um, so here's what's going on. And there's a few options. We could try this or we could try that or we could also do this. What do you guys think? And I'm like, bro, I freaking care about the outcome right now. You are the professional. You've been through school. Hopefully you've done this a thousand times. Like make this happen and keep them alive and give me that outcome. I don't care what path, you know, just, it's like, anyway, sometimes the, uh, yep. that, that's a critical part of, um, 
being a medical professional that I doubt is taught very much in school. It's not. I mean, that's why, you know, anecdotally, at least with all the doctors we've seen, I mean, the the bedside manner is, I would say, missing from the vast majority of them and sort of being able to kind of communicate in the right way. I, I think in that case, when we were there, the do the docs and the nurses that were there were amazing, minus the, the one OB doc, obviously. Um, but they were they they did a very good job and explained everything and kind of as things were progressing. So I mean, we were definitely informed, but they you know no I don't think there was ever a point where um, they asked us what we wanted to do other than this is actually throw this out there too is because she was because our daughter was so early up until twenty four weeks abortions legal. So what they do and because they sat down with us at about twenty three weeks and. Uh, what was it? Four days, I think. I forget the exact day it was, but doctors they came in and kind of told us the numbers and everything, and then they they legally have to ask, like, do you want to sort of number one, do you want to proceed, and number two, if we have to deliver today, do you want to try for us to try to resuscitate? Meaning, do you want us to try to intubate and keep the keep the child breathing and save her life, kind of thing? Because she's not going to be able to do it on her own. Wow. Man, it's, again, I go back to the, you know, there's flaws in our medical system and not all of our doctors are the best, but in general, like, um, amazing that you could have a baby at 24 weeks and they yep. can intubate and do steroids and what, you know, monitor everything I'm sure. And was very scary ride, but, um, the, uh, even if that succeeds, a quarter of the time or half the time. I mean, that's still a lot better than zero like it was 50 or certainly 100 years ago. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the survival rates are pretty great now. So that's so cool, man. So you've you have the baby, you need a little more time um, flexibility to be around the house and support more. Um, you decide you've got some skills you've picked up in through, you know, training and your industry experience. Tell me about the business that you went into. Like, what is it that you do? And and uh, love to hear any uh, experiences from the early days of, of your company. Yeah, so I guess we can maybe work our way backwards. So, I mean, what we are is a we're a revenue marketing agent uh, agency. So. We strictly work with B2B companies and more specifically, we work with technology and technology, technical manufacturing and uh, what we call tech enabled professional services companies. Um, and we work to get them more revenue through marketing. Um, in terms of how we got there, so both Gabby and I had been in the marketing space pretty much since college. Uh, we graduated both 2006, 2007. So we've been doing it for a while. Um, and we both worked on, been on the agency side. We've, we've been corporate. I, I worked for a startup for a little while. So we had a whole bunch of experience doing all this stuff, both in terms of doing the actual work and managing teams and building teams and helping, you know, growing companies, et cetera. So, um, the funny thing is, is probably what was even before we got married, I think we we're just engaged still. Uh, 
Gabby was consulting and I was working full time for another agency. And she, she kind of came up, we were, we were out at a movie or at dinner once. And she's like, Hey, what if, what if we, you just left your job and what if we built an agency together? And I'm like, heck no, we're never doing this. I don't want to mix, mix business with pleasure. Uh, no pun intended since that's the name of our podcast now. Um, oh, really? Yep. Mixing business with pleasure. We can talk about that a bit later, but the, the, the thought in my head was like, no way we're not doing this. You know, you can, you always hear the stories of like, you know, never, never work with your, with your family. Don't work with your friends. It's about right. to lead to disaster. Like that's sort of the, the things that you always hear usually from people that have never done it before. Um, so, and then, you know, fast forward about four years later and we're starting a company. Now, granted it was, there was a lot less choice in this case, but I think we were also much more mature and much more ready to, first of all, do our own thing. And second of all, actually work together. Um, so. Wow. So, um, could you give, if you can't divulge like any, um, client names, which I can understand, can you give us an idea of like general sub industries that you might or or types of uh, categories of firms that you may just to get an idea of like what type of work you do sure yeah um so the the sub verticals really kind of what we always say is we love working in kind of niche b2b businesses so most of the time for the average person sort of we'll call it the the unsexy part of marketing where like we work with a we work with a company that that both manufactures and creates software for um, video intelligence and management for public safety, so like police departments and things like that. Like they're the company that creates some of the body cameras and the video tech that's behind them. Mm. Uh, we work with medical device companies and medical device manufacturers. We work with um, ERP software companies. Uh, that kind of stuff. So to a certain extent, all over the board, like we we work with companies that are 25 to 50 people. We've worked with multi-billion dollar companies. Gotcha. And so let's use the public safety um, software. Is software management is, is what the company provides and then you'd be marketing their services to their uh, B2B clients? Exactly. So we would, uh, you know, they, like I said, they have a platform for a minute for managing like video evidence and getting intelligence out of the data that comes with it and all that. Plus they actually manufacture the, the products themselves. Uh, so like the body cameras and the police car cameras and all that fun stuff. And we would be, our job is to get them in front of, uh, you know, police departments and sheriff's departments and things like that and uh, get leads and drive revenue. Wow. Yeah, years ago, I was responsible for selling to state and, and local government, um, cities, towns, sheriffs, schools, um, you know, meeting with superintendents and everybody. Uh, how did you go about marketing to that crowd? So, yeah, the, the, the government is, government's interesting, right? Because it's, you got really long sales cycles. Um, the good thing is about public safety is that these people are really easy to find because you can, it's very easy to find, you know, 
on LinkedIn and on Facebook and et cetera to find the chief of police and things like that of a given city. Yeah, so or the county director. Fairly... I used to use the county directory or the you know the city <laughs> website, and you can find ev literally everybody. Yeah. Yep. It's like the challenge there that, isn't too. finding the person; it's it's getting through to them and cutting through the noise. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, really, for and as it is, honestly, with the majority of the companies we work with, a lot it, it really comes down to. Um, I always say that with a really considered purchase, like multi-million dollar contract for hardware software or for a you know enterprise level ERP system or something like that when you're dealing with multiple people you're there's trust is the most important thing right so what you're trying to do as a marketer uh whether you're in-house or as an agency doing it for these clients is you're trying to build trust with the prospect and usually it's with a team of prospects because when you're selling an enterprise you got you know five, six, seven people making a decision uh, at various levels. So, and when you when you think about trust, we always think about, you know, do I trust you as a person? Do I trust you as a professional? And then do I trust you, your organization? So when we're talking about building trust, we're trying to do that. We're obviously generally focused on the organization, but sometimes we're, you know, we're also working with the executives and doing thought leadership content for them. We're working with, uh, you know, heads of sales and things like that and doing, helping them with some of their social media content and, and those types of things. So it's a lot of what we're doing is building trust and kind of the broader term for that, I guess you can say is thought leadership. Yeah, so it's um, a multifaceted approach that to penetrate that type of market. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's a lot of um, and it's a lot of content so, development and things like that. Okay. You've been you said you've been in the open the business how many years ago was it? Um so it's kind of funny. Uh it depends on what what date you use, but uh at this point we're going on uh year 3. Is how we talk about it. Because the reality, like I started consulting. Okay, so if cool. we look at when we, when I started consulting versus when the business got incorporated versus when uh, Gabby and I went full time together, like there's there, the business sort of has three birthdays, if you will, which is very similar to our daughter who we celebrate three birthdays for the, the day she was actually born, the day she was supposed to be born and the day she got released from the hospital. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's no. Um, there's always gray area around that type of question. So, yep. um, but we'll just say three, three ish years. Yep. Um, what, what is it like, um, being in business as a partner with your wife? Um, you have all of the dynamics of a traditional marriage, but add in your teammates, partners, um, your, all of that. What is that like? And um, any any sort of lessons learned or advice or funny stories, man? Love to hear it. I have I have something for each of those questions. Uh, the the short, I mean, I love it. Honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, usually, the answer or the response we get when we say, "Oh yeah, we work together," it's like, "Oh my god, I couldn't, 
I couldn't do it, right? Because of the same things that we talked about earlier. You know, people say, don't work with your family, et cetera. Um, but my response to that is, you know, a business partnership is built on trust. And if you can't trust your spouse, you got a whole different set of issues. Um, so I think there's, you definitely have to have a, an incredibly strong relationship in marriage before you jump into business together. Otherwise, one of the two things is probably going to fail, I would guess, at least. Um, I think that's why we've been successful, because not least of which is because we went through that insanely difficult six months with our daughter together. You know, they kind of talk about, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of thing. It's definitely true in that case, because um, I don't know how we would have dealt with the COVID situation this year had we not dealt with that crisis in the past. You know, as an example. Yeah, you've, you've all, you're very comfortable with um, isolating because you've, it's been life or death for your family for a couple well, of Well, yeah, there's that. I'm, I'm just talking more about just being, being able to, being able to deal with a, a crisis and sort of operating under pressure. Forget the, I mean, there's definitely the, the similarities of, yeah, we were pretty much, we were doing, um, you know, social distancing and whatnot before anybody knew what the heck it was. And so your point was that just the uh, crisis in general of, of COVID-19, not as uh, you, yeah. you've already been, been through, um, challenges that were uh more significant for your family than, than this we've just we've navigated at that point we had already navigated a very very difficult situation that you know and again if you think about all the all the elements that are involved you know there are partners if you will the medical professionals there's uh let's say lots of technical expertise that's needed to to deal with all this stuff uh, one way or the other um project management, right? Because you got to manage all the care and whatnot. Um, I mean, the, the list really, the, the list of similarities, if you will, or the skills that you gain from that kind of experience just goes on and on. Um, you know, being able to be persuasive, being able to be an advocate for yourself, like all that stuff translates into the, into the entrepreneurship world, I think, pretty well. You never, obviously, you're not thinking about that when you're going through the the, the medical situation, but that's just the reality, I think. Right, right. And you said your your podcast that you and your wife run is you interview couples who are in business together, kind of like yourselves. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we started that. Uh, the The idea actually I had about uh, three years ago, roughly when we were kicking off our business. Um, we were just not gonna have two things launching at the same time. Which yeah, is probably a good thing. So. We started mm -hmm. in August of this year, and we've now interviewed, what, 20-some 20, 20 couples? It's a weekly podcast, and we've interviewed, you know, everybody from tech founders to uh, um, CPAs and just all sorts of different types of businesses. That's awesome. <clears throat> what have you... Like when you when you think about either most fun or um, best stories or things that you would never want to happen to your marriage and business partnership, like what stands out from the your first twenty or so episodes? Um, 
I mean, honestly, like the, the, the reality is all the people we talk to have been doing it successfully. Right. So the, and I, I, and all of us, I think have learned from certain mistakes. Uh, some of the common ones, which are honestly some of the same ones that we've encountered are things like, um, not, uh, creating and sticking to your own swim lanes, if you will. Right. In terms of really defining your, each of your job descriptions and sticking to them and, saying, okay, I'm responsible for X, Y, and Z, and you're responsible for this other stuff. Um, and just making sure that there's a process in place for uh, how to manage, like who who has the last word kind of thing. And so that once you have a team, people know, okay, well, I've got a question about this. Mike's going to have the final word no matter what happens. And if I've got a question about this other thing, Gabby's going to have the final word no matter what happens. So they know who to go to. Um, okay. You know, things like that. That's That's one. It's a big gotcha. one. So you're saying a... swim lanes are critical. For a second, I thought you were saying that they some people do that, but you don't recommend it. But you're saying for sure, like oh, 100%. swim lanes. Okay. Yeah, we definitely made the mistake of initially saying just kind of actually, and we didn't even create job descriptions for ourselves until this year. Um, I mean, we we sort of loosely defined them over time, but in the beginning, we were just kind of all over the place, and it definitely caused a number of arguments. Not gonna lie. I'm sure. <laughs> and the other so, thing the other thing i'll throw out there is uh, is uh it's actually for the very first couple we interviewed they're out they also happen to be marketing agency owners in a slightly different niche but um they, they have a bigger team at this point we you know we had asked them like what's the how does your team deal with you know the two of you and they sort of said well you know some advice we got early on that we really should have listened to is don't fight in front of the kids uh, kids being employees. So right. uh, we definitely make a point not to do that because you, I think, interestingly enough, I had actually, my my first internship out of college was, happened to be for husband and wife owned um, branding company. And it was awful. Like they even, they, they didn't, they didn't even really tell me that they were husband and wife when I started working there. I had no idea. What? And it just, it was really, it was really, really weird and awkward. And they, get into weird arguments at work. And I was like, this is, this is bad. I want nothing to do with this. So um, we definitely made, we're definitely careful to, you know, not get into arguments about anything in, fr in front of our employees. Like, it doesn't mean we don't disagree, but we do it professionally. You know, and basic yeah. things like, you know, we talk to each other professionally when we're around uh, our employees, like in meetings and things like that, rather than, Hey babe, how's it going? Or whatever. Like we don't do any of that stuff. Gotcha. And when you are outside of your working hours, what is your approach? Do you say, Hey, we're in this together. We're partners on most <laughs> entrepreneurs work more than standard business hours. We're going to naturally talk about business uh, at the dinner table or when we're hanging out, or do you set like a boundary of, Hey, if it's past a certain time, like we do not talk any business or any any strategic decisions. How do you approach that? I would be lying if I told you we have that one figured out. Um, and I don't I don't know that anybody really does. I mean, pretty much everybody we interviewed on the podcast, that's kind of a question that comes up. And um, everybody has their own process, but everybody still struggles with it. Now, when you're an entrepreneur and you're a business owner, especially when you're in the earlier stages of the company, when 
you're still wearing a lot of the hats and you haven't kind of uh, developed where the point you're not really needed. Um, that that line between business and personal is really, really blurry. Um, so for us, it's sort of, it's random. Usually it's one of us will just get to the point in, during the day or the week or whatever it is where we're like, you know what? I, I'm not talking business anymore, so let's just stop. And then we just do. We don't have a set time. I, we, we tried that before and it just didn't work for us because the, especially for me, like my brain is always going. I, actually, I, for the most part, I enjoy the work. Like I enjoy problem solving and I, I just like working. Right. So my brain's always going with different ideas or whatever. It kind of drives my wife crazy sometimes, but the, like for me to create a, a set in stone kind of thing. Hey, after 7 PM or 6 PM or whatever, we don't talk any more business. Like I, I just can't do it. Um, but if Gabby comes up, like if I come downstairs or whatever, and we sit down for dinner and I say, I'm like, Hey, I was thinking about this. And she goes, you know what? I'm just done with work for the day. Okay. You don't want to work for the day. We're done. That's fine. Yeah. So flexible on yeah. that one. A minute ago, you mentioned adding, you know, building out your team so that ideally you're not needed, you know, minute to minute, right? Um, I would love to hear your approach when it comes to hiring, because my experience in small business prior to joining a large enterprise was that hiring is a real challenge, you know, getting, finding the right people um, at the right you know, sort of price point and and skill level is a real challenge, and it's the the stakes are very high because um, everyone's going to say no matter what company they're in is going to say hiring is critical. Got to get the right people, but it's like if you hire the wrong person at Amazon or Cisco or Google, they're responsible for point zero 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 one percent of the company's overall like return. <laughs> if yep. you hire the wrong person. You're probably putting that person in charge of five or ten or twenty or forty percent of the, you know, company, and they can have an outsized impact on on your business. How do you go about finding and building that team? So we've we've learned uh, we've definitely in the very first few years we definitely hired some wrong people. Um, now, the vast majority of them were not bad people by any means. One was. We won't talk about those details, but um, the the vast majority of them were perfectly good people. They just weren't the right fit for one reason or another. Some were skill-based. Some were, which means we really, and, and, um, and in all of these cases, we were able to take a step back and look at where the problem happened and why it happened. And really kind of take the blame. And it was our, it was completely our fault. Like, and I'll give you one example. Uh, this is a person that we're still in pretty close contact with, uh, but it was a, she was a contractor for us for, for a while. And she was amazing. The clients loved her uh, and we wanted to hire her full time. And we finally made her an offer. She kind of couldn't refuse, if you will. And literally the day that she signed that employment agreement, and became a full-time employee, even though her work didn't really change for whatever reason, everything else did and performance started slipping and whatnot and didn't last very long. And what we found is like, there are people that just don't want to be employees uh, for one reason or another, and that's okay. And we like, mm. 
we shouldn't try to change that. Uh, so that's like one lesson. We we have you know we have a good relationship with her and actually sure. just did you have any indication or did she give any indication that she had a, a preference for being um, a contractor? She did. That's the thing is she said she started she pretty much blatantly I don't remember the exact conversation but it pretty much told her yeah you know I really like you know being able to kind of own my time and this thing and we're, we have a flexible working environment and all that stuff so theoretically it should have been the same but it wasn't um so yes we in hindsight we definitely should have not done that not because she was a bad employee or because she didn't she had the wrong skill set it was just the wrong fit at that time um we've listened no judgment from me man i like (laughs) entrepreneur and being in small and i'm not an entrepreneur but just being i had a uh you know, a lot of responsibility at a smaller business and in charge of hiring and firing. And you're, you're making lots of judgments all the time. And, and you hit on a lot of them and some of them you don't. Um, it's just, you know, you try, she may have even given in hindsight, it's like easy to see. Yeah. She even said she didn't want this, but you're wearing some optimistic glasses and you're thinking, we'll bring her in. We want to keep her clients, love yep. her. She'll be really good. And then you know, no one else is going to take her and, um, all, you know, you're looking at it all through that and you're like, we're going to pay her. We're willing to make her happy. And, um, but at the end of the day, it comes back down to that one, you know, from the get go, just wasn't the right sort of philosophical fit. Yep. Yeah. I mean, some of the other mistakes we made with hiring were things like, you know, not, not asking the right, even technical questions and whatnot. So, uh, like we hired a, she was, Amazing woman. She was also really, really good at what she did, but she came from a much bigger company and, you know, more set processes, more training opportunities, things like that. And we just didn't, we didn't ask the right questions. We brought her in and she was just, you know, being in a, in a three or at that point, four person startup, very, very different uh, than working for a large corporation and having a huge team and a bunch of resources. So. Uh, that doesn't mean that we wouldn't hire somebody from a large corporation again. It just depends on what their experience is. And we've we've just we've I don't want to say perfected because I'm sure we still have room to grow and improve, but uh we've we've definitely significantly improved our our hiring process where we're just not gonna make these mistakes again. Right. So we, you know, you're... going back to your original question, how do we do it? Um we definitely, we, we we have a pretty long interview process, I would say, um, but it's purposeful. So, and we try to qualify people pretty quickly so that we don't spend a lot of time with too many candidates because we just don't have that kind of time. So we have them submit a, just like a, a mini technical assessment almost. It's only a couple of questions and a video uh, up front. Because we want to know we're we're fully remote, so we want to know. Okay, what is your written communication like? What is your visual communication like? Are you how do you look on video? Are you is this for you? So there's a lot of things we can glean from just a you know five minute video and a, them answering in written form a couple of questions. Um, and then move them on. Then there's a couple of in person interviews. One is technical, um, in in person over video. We're fully remote, so um, but we've kind of perfected that where we just. Don't make the doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. I'm sure we will. Things can slip through, but 
um, fewer and far between. Yeah, I like that. Um, the five minute video and um, it reminds me when I managed a call center, we used we started out kind of doing what the previous uh, group had done and that was put, you know, 30 minute interviews with each candidate. And I was like, you know, I kind of had a feeling like five minutes in whether or not I was going to offer somebody a job or not. And yep. like five minutes in, I'm, I, my mind doesn't usually change. Uh, it goes back and forth that first two minutes, three minutes, maybe. But, um, eventually it got down to, I had each person do a panel five minute interview with three different people, which is kind of insane in one sense, but like, Honestly, I think we had a pretty good hit rate on it. And, and some people did, you know, kind of that should have been filtered out weren't. But like overall, it's like if you can get a pretty good sense of somebody in a few minutes. Yeah. And again, the goal is in that initial phase is just to qualify them in the sense of are they a good person? Do they fit? Could they fit our culture? And do they seem to have the basic sort of overarching skill set? Not even necessarily really like you know for us it'd be like a paid media like do you know google ads do you know facebook do you know like i don't need to know that necessarily in the first interview your resume will tell me that you've done it at least and that's enough for me to talk to you but are you able to communicate right are you able to work in a remote environment do you, you know that kind of stuff like that's what's important because if you can't post things i don't care how you're just not, it's not gonna work for you here right so um, anything on the business or podcast or the any, anything we've touched on that we should uh, tie off before I shift gears a little bit? Um, I don't think so. I mean, uh, it, it all depends on uh, sort of who your listeners listeners specifically are, and if there's any need to dive more into kind of you know B two B marketing stuff. If I'm happy to do that, if you want. Otherwise, I think we're good. Cool. Yeah, we'll do if anything comes back up, we can uh, weave it in and we'll just kind of keep flowing. So um, I'd love to, you know, get to know you a little bit more. So tell me, like, where did you grow up? What type of kid were you and what were you interested in? Uh, so actually, I, I was born in Moldova, so former Soviet Union. Uh, I didn't move to the States till I was about eight years old, 92, from my parents. Um, so I speak fluent Russian. Uh, Anybody knows where Moldova is. Um, and so the, the, I have that, um, I don't know if that's going to mean anything to you or your listeners, but I kind of have that, a little bit of that, uh, you know, former Soviet mentality, if you will, kind of, uh, uh, I'm not going to call it a rough upbringing. I mean, you know, we lived in a nice apartment and whatever, but um, like it's Soviet Russia. Right. So there's everything is kind of controlled by the government, like basic things like, um, you know, the grocery stores that we've got here, they didn't have that. Right. And in terms of you have to wait in line to get things like toilet paper and whatever. I remember as a five year old kid, there was a little corner store in our neighborhood. Uh, and it's like a large string of apartment complexes. I mean, almost nobody had individual homes. It was mostly apartments. Um, and when the truck would come in that would deliver stuff, once I got old enough, I was about five or six years old, my mom would usually be in the middle of whatever, I don't know, cooking or something. And we'd go down there and she'd put me in line, usually between two large, angry Russian women. 
I'd sit, I'd stand there in line for whatever, 15, 20 minutes while she went back inside to do whatever. And then she'd come back. So things like that. That was, that was my upbringing. Um, um, I'm fascinated by like Russian <clears throat> culture because it's a very, very different view on life and the world um, than generally what I've seen in uh, America. Like, how would you say your family culture or, or habits or um, approaches were different than what you'd see amongst um, your peers as a kid or kind of looking back now as a, an adult American on, on that culture? What, what kind of stands out as being different? I mean, probably one of the most common ones, and it's definitely affected me uh, in relationships and like in business. I've I've gotten better at it, but you know, if you look at most, um, you know, whatever, look at the Russian presidents and whatever, and then kind of famous Russian people, if you will, Eastern Europeans in general, very kind of uh, I don't want I don't want to say stone faced, but kind of right. There's a, there's not a lot of facial expression that happens. So you don't know if this person's pissed or if they're elated. Yeah. Um, and they, they have a very good sort of what I like to call an FU face. Um, very you know, good. <laughs> and that's definitely gotten me in trouble in the past. And it's one of those things where you don't, I never really realized that how bad it was until I met my wife. And she's like, and she called me out on it a few times. And I'm like, oh, I, I guess I do that. Um, so I've, I've definitely worked on it. Um, and it's funny because again, I, I've lived most of my life here, uh, not there. I mean, I'm going to be 36 here. So I came here when I was eight years old. So I've definitely lived big, the majority of my life in, in the States, but right. uh, that clearly stuck around, you know, and I, and I, even now, like I look at my, when I'm hanging out with, and it doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean that they don't smile or laugh ever, but usually they do in more private settings, right? Like even sometimes I'll be hanging out with my dad and kind of look look at his facial expressions. I'm like, okay, now I see it, you know, because even now I'm, I'm starting to realize it. Yeah. It is funny um, spending time with parents after being, a you know, kind of growing up and being a, away for whether it's five or 10 or 20 years. And then you see things in your parents that are like even more pronounced than what you do. It's like, oh, yeah, I know where I get that from. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I would, when first time I spent a significant amount of time around Eastern Europeans, it was like a weird, I thought it was like something I was doing wrong. Like, I, man, I must have lost my mojo. Like, none of my jokes are funny. I don't know. Oh, the humor is way different. That's the other like, thing. I, you know, it's stone face for sure. I wasn't used to that. And I took it like, I just couldn't handle it. Didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, the, the Eastern European humor is also very, very, very different. And it's still like, I still find it hilarious when we, because again, my, my wife's not, uh, not Russian or Eastern European or anything. For that matter, her family is half Middle Eastern, half South American. So we had a pr pretty good mix. Wow. But um, whenever, every once in a while, my in family gatherings, my dad will try to like translate a, you know, a, a Russian joke or whatever, and just it's never funny, ever. Once you try to translate it. My it's weird hearing like my um my uh, paternal grandfather is a full blooded Hungarian born mm -hmm. in the U S but um 
in a small town in Pennsylvania, just full of, of um, Hungarians and yep. really weird cultural stuff. Like wouldn't even let like grandparents or the grandparents wouldn't even let the grandkids like in inside their house, you know, and, and the way they talk and, and just, I don't know, just little things where it's like, Whoa, that's a so foreign, you know, I guess a lot of that kind of melts out of uh, melts out over a couple generations, but yep. Um, anyway, different um so you um if where did you which state did you say you grew up in uh minnesota i mean we we moved to minnesota. minneapolis in 1992 and i've been been here ever since cool and what were your interests as a teenager were you into sports or reading yep. or what were you into? i was i was kind of that you know I, I never really fit in as a kid for the most part uh even probably maybe even through college to a certain extent like i was I was always I was always kind of in the in the middle of a lot of different things, right? So I wasn't I wasn't really a nerd, if you will, but I like to learn, you know. And I, as I got older, I started liking to read more, and you know, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I really I liked sports, but I wasn't really a jock, right? So I wasn't I played sports, but I never really made it to varsity. I probably like had I done wrestling, I probably would have in hindsight because I I got into martial arts, really my thing. So I got into like you know contact karate and kickboxing and tie boxing and jiu-jitsu and all that stuff as i got older but um i remember trying to the, the high school wrestling coach always tried to recruit me and i was like this whole skin tight outfit thing that they do i'm not really a fan of. <laughs> yeah um in hindsight i really should have done that but i did um so i was you know and again i've I had a bunch of russian friends but i also had some american friends and it was just i was always kind of in that weird middle ground of i never completely fit in into one place or the other. Now, at the same time, it made me very um, uh, adaptable, if you will. Right? I kind of adapt to different situations. Um, but yeah, I, was, I, was in, I was in the sports um, as I was growing up. So, Cool. And you mentioned uh, martial arts. I, mm -hmm. I picked up um, jujitsu a couple of years ago. A friend got me into it, and I love it. Nice. Um, it's great. I haven't done jiu-jitsu in a while. I mean, my my sport of choice was always uh, Muay Thai. So I did I did that, and actually, up until I got married, uh, is pretty much when I I was still competing at that point. Not like I wasn't like a top level pro or anything, but but yeah, that's cool, man. I would love to do some Muay Thai. That's um, that's good. That's, that's the rough thing about the this pandemic. I haven't done anything in God forever. I met I met up with a old training partner of mine at a park once uh over the last nine months and that was that was great but that was one time yeah <laughs> i went to my buddy's house last night and uh we were rolling and it's like man you always know when you uh get in a good session the next day your body's just beat up yep especially if you haven't done it for a while yeah your body definitely lets you know yeah um so i always like to ask guests about uh their father figure so your dad, um, we know he was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, came to Minneapolis. What? Tell me a little about his sort of parenting style and what's one thing you feel like he really nailed as a father? You know, uh, it's funny because um, I always was and still am, I would say, like closer with my mom, just in terms of personality and things like that. Um, yeah. My dad was... The, uh, he was the, the quieter, 
um, kind of, he was, always, he was always quieter and more, um, you always think things through, takes, takes him a long time to make decisions, things like that. Um, but what probably the biggest thing I took away from him is, uh, how to, how to treat your spouse. Um, I still remember, you know, my parents were never, they weren't terribly strict, at least not by, uh, Soviet standards. You know, like I didn't get spanked and stuff like that. I got grounded, I did something stupid, but that's normal. Um, but I remember this was after we were living in the States and I was a teenager already. I was maybe, I don't know, 13 ish, I think. I forget exactly what it was, but, um, I got in a screaming match with my mom and I said some things I shouldn't have and, you know, made her cry or whatever for the first time. She ran into, the, into their bedroom and slammed the door. My dad comes out. I'd never seen him this angry in my life. And he'd never, he'd never threatened to hit me or whatever, but he's like, if you ever, like, if you ever do that again, like he actually raised his hand at me kind of thing. I'm like, like you do not treat your mother that way kind of thing. And that's sort of extrapolated into, you know, how you treat women in general and things like that. Yeah. Good. That's, I like the, um, the restraint and the, what you knew when he escalated to that, I was like, oh, damn, this is serious, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd never seen it before. I'd never, there's only a couple of times in my life where I've seen him get that look in his eye. And he'd never, the only time he'd ever raised his hand at me was then. And so you kind of know, and he's he's not a, he's not a very, he's not an imposing figure. He's not very tall. He's not big. Like he's not terrible. He's not very athletic kind of thing, but it doesn't matter. He's your dad. Right, right, right. right. He's a grown man and you're 13. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's, I remember, I honestly, the, um, my most, uh, severe punishment came at the same age. I was 13 and, um, my dad escalated it to a new level. I was like, oh man, he's serious right now. And, uh, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> yeah. I, think I think it's a rite of passage for, you know, teenage boys is their dad's got to get a, kind of get a little extra angry once to teach him a lesson. Yeah. Um, so what do you do when you've got some spare time? Tell me about some of your hobbies and why you like them. So I am, um, when I have spare time, which lately hasn't been a ton, but um, I'm very big in the outdoors, like hiking and camping. Uh, in the Usually in the summers, I'm not, you know, we live in Minnesota. It's freaking cold here in the winter. Um, I'm not a big winter camper, although I've never tried, to be honest. I probably will at some point. Uh, but outdoors and then martial arts. I mean, that's my, that's my go-to or just, the, just any type of physical activity. I've been kind of lax over the last few months, unfortunately, but, um, working out, lifting, running, what pre pandemic, you know, going to the gym, boxing, et cetera. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm, the I'm, I'm also, I mean, I'm a fairly big reader. Like I, when I haven't read anything in a little while, it's not enough, but in general, like I go in spurts where I'll read, you know, 10 books in a couple of months kind of thing. And then nothing oh. for the rest of the year. When, as a reader, do you have a um, favorite series or book that, or maybe, a, you know, a top two or something that you kind of go back to as uh, definitely on your your list of favorites or you read so much all the time, you couldn't narrow it down to a, a favorite? You know, I mean, I've got my favorites, I would say, in different in different genres. Um, I've never been the type to re reread books, though. 
I know other people do. I just can't like can't get myself to do it. Like I'll sometimes with with nonfiction, uh, I will sometimes go back and try to find like a specific passage. And what I've started doing kind of over time is actually taking notes. Like I'll take notes in, in books, not in for for fiction books. I won't because those are just for enjoyment for ninety nine percent of the time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the nonfiction side, like if you pick up one of the books I've read, there's underlines and little notes scribbled on the sides and in the middle and stuff like that. And I'll also like take notes in a notebook along with it and things like that, just so it's easier to find specific stuff that I know I'm going to want to reference. Mm-hmm. Um, on the nonfiction side, like I'm, I'm big into sci-fi and fantasy. So like the Dune series by Frank Herbert's, so, um, I read the first couple a while back and actually that was probably the only book I've read. I read Dune. I started trying to read Dune when I was much younger and I just didn't get into it. And then I read it again in my twenties and I loved it. And then I'm actually in the middle of what is it, book five in that series right now. Cool. And like, you know, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all that fun stuff. Sure. Classic. <clears throat> yep. Uh, tell me about a failure or significant obstacle that's been in your path that like in hindsight you could look back and say that that failure or obstacle set you up for success um i can give you a fairly recent one so i've I've never i'm not a salesperson by training i'm a marketer and gabby my wife is as well and when we started the business we had a pretty good reputation we still do a good personal reputation and uh locally here in terms of you know really know what we, what we what we do and how we do it and all that so our business grew just by sheer volume of referrals right but pretty early on uh i remember having a conversation with, with gabby and saying hey you know this this isn't gonna last forever we got to start marketing we got to start selling but we didn't really do it fast enough right and as we were starting to do it coming into 2020 we we we're working on rebranding and starting to get some marketing out there and actually kind of practicing what we preach kind of thing. Pandemic hit and our pipeline was pretty bone dry at the time. Um, so it was, uh, that was a big, I don't want to call it a failure because it, I mean, our business is still around. We're doing really well now, but um, it was, it was a rough, you know, six, seven months uh, after that. Yeah, we lost a, it. a failed decision or, or, um... yeah a project delayed not a failure in the sense that the business failed but yeah yeah, yeah. definitely uh you would change that one over yeah so i mean the... in hindsight like i don't know that i would change right because it's one of those things where do i regret it i guess sort of but at the same time i think it you know i personally at least i operate better kind of under pressure like if my back's against the wall yep. uh, or against the ropes if you will for a fight analogy like that's where i i just do better that way um so this situation sort of forced me to make all the decision necessary to kind of you know, turn things around and work on the things that I wasn't necessarily good at per se, or at least not as good at, but those are things that, you know, a business really needed. So I'm fascinated to hear what those approaches were when it, you know, when February, uh, March, April hit your pipeline of sort of referrals is um drying up temporarily you haven't done a whole lot of marketing like where do you start you're an experienced marketer but you 
you know, you've been busy building your business and marketing for your clients. You haven't needed to market your business. Like, where do you jump in and, and get the most bang for your buck in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, well, at that point, well, so there, there's a couple of things. One is um, because of the industries we work with, and we kind of pretty much right away, we sort of knew, okay, we're going to be a few months behind the curve, if you will, right? Because we don't work with restaurants. We don't work with a lot of the, you know, we'll call it main street businesses that just got shut down right away. Um, so we kind of knew, okay, depending on how this all plays out, we're going to be a few months behind because by the time it hits the, the businesses that we deal with, like, for example, um, schools, right? Schools didn't get shut down until April in Minnesota uh, and kind of in, in most cases around the country. The end of March, April was kind of when the schools started getting shut down. So we have a, had a fairly large client of ours that that's their target. That's their market. Uh, so like there was a few like we, we were already planning right? as soon as this whole thing started rolling out, we were already planning for, OK, Here's the company. Here's the here's the accounts that are likely gonna have the highest likelihood of going away, uh, you know things like that. But um, the reality was is when it did hit, it hit bigger than we thought it would, which I think was true for most people. Um, and we kind of, you know, we had very little cash flow at that point, not none, but so it's not like we could invest a whole ton into marketing. Uh, really, what we started doing is actually doing outbound sales ourselves, trying to figure that out and with very little success i'll say um so finally we got to the point where we actually hired a we hired a sales coach and it's been nothing but significant improvement ever since really so we've what? oh yeah huh. it's been, so you it's hire been a, like a, a consultant who's a professional yeah. seller that um yep. is he giving you sort of playbooks and and tools or does he have contacts or like what what do you get what kind of help are you getting and and um so it's actually, uh, it's funny. They're also a husband and wife owned uh, company and we interviewed them for our podcast. That's how we got introduced. Okay. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a benefit to having the podcast going at this time. Um, but it, it, it's really kind of, it, it's his experience helping in his playbook, but adapted to our business and what we need to do. So there's, you know, the, obviously there's the playbook building and some of the process development, but then also, live coaching so like we'll right now we'll have a couple of sessions a week one session you know we'll do live like um uh pipeline advancement like deal advancement so we'll go through and we'll either call people live together like obviously he's not doing the talking he's just sort of listening and then we're doing post-mortem kind of things um or we'll do prospecting together where he's helping us craft messages and figure out strategies and things like that. So it's been, it's definitely been night and day from a sales perspective. Uh, we've also started leveraging our podcast for uh, marketing and connecting with some of the right people and getting just more content out there and getting in front of other people, things like that. The biggest thing we did, honestly, that had a huge difference is really focusing on our personal brands and getting out there on LinkedIn. And I think if I would say for anybody, even right now, still, whether you're a small business owner or whether you're an executive of a company, I think there's a huge untapped opportunity there if you do it right. Um, I mean, we, at one point I could point to a number of deals in our pipeline saying, Hey, this person connected with me due to a LinkedIn post, we started a conversation and now they're a prospect. That's awesome. Good for so you. I love to hear about co content the, uh... networking, if you will, or content based yeah, networking. Good. Um, 
what just out of curiosity so content i used to do some marketing back in the day but it's been i know that it, that industry quickly changes when you go to look at build out content like what is what's your preferred forms of content um i don't i don't i don't know necessarily that's preferred just because like you said it changes all the time right in the sense of you know, now videos, I mean, videos always, everyone's been saying, you know, video is going to be important, going to be important. But I think the, as with a lot of other things, um, actually video and audio, like podcasts right now, the pandemic has been like a huge force multiplier for those media types. Um, because people are, have pretty much overnight changed how they consume content and the type of content that they consume. Maybe not changed completely, but at least it's evolved. Mm -hmm. and of the types of messages that they will respond to um and things like that i mean for the at the risk of sounding cliche like you know everyone at the start of the pandemic was talking about being authentic and whatnot and it's kind of lost its meaning to a certain extent but that's you know people want more authentic messaging like they want the real deal they don't want to for like as an example like they'd rather see you kind of in your raw form with a video on LinkedIn rather than a produced commercial and mm. things like that. Um, so, I mean, all the content types have their place. Like, I mean, I, we put out audio, obviously we have our podcast. Actually, we're launching another one. That's going to, that's this other one that we're going to be launching in the next month here is going to be strictly marketing focused uh, where we're going to interview other, you know, marketing leaders about case studies. Um, marketing case studies and sort of tactical knowledge and things like that that we can pass on to our listeners. Um, but yeah, so that, I mean, audio is important. Video, you know, we do video. I do a lot of written content still. I mean, for our clients, kind of the same thing, right? I mean, we're still, there's still value to blogging if you do it right. Um, the strategies may be different than it would have been five years ago, but it still makes sense. Uh, you know, developing certain value-add content still makes sense. Um, I mean, as far as like how we do it, we actually have a pretty tried and true. This is one of the main things we sell actually is, uh, we've developed a, a pretty solid content framework. So, um, what often happens for individuals and for businesses is they'll develop a content strategy, let's just say, so they'll get to the point where they know who they're targeting pretty well. Like they know the personas. And maybe they've already built out like, okay, here's the topics I'm going to talk about because that's what these people care about. But then there's not, they've never, op, they'll never operationalize it down to the point where you know exactly what content to do for each individual person at what time in their journey and on which channels, what needs to be promoted, uh, you know, in terms of sp uh, sponsored posts and uh, media dollars and things like that. Like that operationalization, I don't know if that's a word, just isn't there. And that's what we've sort of built out. And that's a, a, one of the things that we really push as an engagement for the majority of clients that come work with us is that because we've we've now done it you know, dozens of times and it works. Yeah. That's smart though, those the the follow-ups, the the little tailored messages to small slices of the market where you can get a really uh you know three or four X the conversion rate instead of getting two and a half percent, you can get 10%, or instead of getting 8%, you can get 35%. I mean, 
um, you can really quality over volume. Yeah, I yeah. mean the, that's that's a big shift, and I think a lot of especially larger enterprise businesses are behind because um, they're still running the lead generation playbook from you know five ten years ago. Yeah, and like it was a it was it wasn't really working that well even before COVID, but afterwards it's dead, and I think most are just not <laughs> recognizing that it's dead yet. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, so you've uh let's talk a little about family uh you've told us a little about about your family um have you guys had a chance to go on any uh vacations i usually like to ask guests about a you know favorite vacation they've taken you guys we, we've done a little bit yeah i mean travel um travel is huge for us obviously right now we haven't gone anywhere um sorry give me one second i gotta send a quick text here my meeting back um yeah so we we've done a bunch of traveling Tra traveling has been a one of the things that we that, that's sort of a must for us if you will so right now is tough because of that um my wife's got family overseas so her mom's brazilian so we've she's got family over there so prior to covid we've we've gone since we got married we've been married for a little over seven years uh we've gone three times and our daughters have been gone twice. So um that's a the the first couple trips with her there were interesting with all her medical equipment that we had to bring with us. Wow. Uh, so those those trips were amazing. I mean I'd never been I've been to South America before but I've never been to Brazil and it's it's a it's an uh, amazing awesome country. Wow. So you are both a husband and a father. Um, in what ways are you a better husband than three to five years ago? And in what ba in what ways are you a better father than you know two or three years ago? And you're putting me on the spot. Um, I mean, I would definitely say that the biggest thing, and, and my wife will second this, I think, if you were to ask her, um, is I've really evolved in terms of, like, I've, I'm always, I'm, I'm always the type of person that I like to, like I said, I like to learn, I like to know a lot of things, and I like to, uh, like, I, I think everybody enjoys being right, but I, I just, I enjoy arguing and making sort of logical mm -hmm. arguments and things like that, but I think I've really evolved in um, just listening more and, and, trusting uh gabby's more uh, emotional emotionally based arguments and what i've learned over time both in business and in, in life um trusting her gut for me is extremely important because 90 percent of the time she's right even if she can't articulate it nice and as far as uh father i mean I would say that, I mean, just the, I mean, honestly, it's, it's hard for me to say just because the, the experience of, I didn't, I didn't have the normal kind of father experience the first couple of years, right? Like it was medical equipment and doctors and whatever. Um, so I think I probably had to evolve much sooner, I think, as a father than maybe the average father does. I don't know. 
hard for me to say because I have nothing to compare it to, right? But um, I just think, I think the, the biggest thing I would say, and this is more of a, I guess, recommendation for parents in general, is I've like, very, from a very early point, we, together and me specifically, we talk to our daughter as a, as a, not kind of, we talk about adult concepts, but with a, you know, child lens to them. Like we won't, we won't like keep things from her. Uh, I think a lot of parents will, they'll avoid topics like death and, you know, like if there's a death in the family and things like that. And I think, I think that's a, that's a mistake in my mind. Um, mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, like early on, I lost both my grandparents uh, in 2019. Her daughter was three going on four at the time. And we explained it to her like in a kid friendly way, I think, but she was old enough to where she was asking questions and like, okay, well, I guess let's just tell her. Um, and I mean, from a very early age, like we told her how she came to be and like, there's a, we've made a, my wife made a baby book for her that has all the photos of her literally as she came out 10 ounces and all or 11 ounces. So yeah, I don't, I don't know that I answered that question very well, but. All good. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to talk to them uh, and you know, let them be the ones that kind of indicate when they're not picking it up. But, uh, you know, a lot of times we're inclined to like, oh, I don't want to tell them this or this will go over their head. It's like, well, maybe not, you know, give it a shot. Start it, try to simplify that concept so that a child can understand it. And you'll be surprised. They'll probably pick it up, you know, at a deeper level than what we thought. Yeah, I mean, we've had both of us, both my wife and I've had situations where we'll still even even after what I just told you, they'll like there'll be something that our daughter is asking or talking about. And one of us will start answering the question and the other one will go, what are you doing? She's not going to understand it. And then all of a sudden she has a follow up. That's like completely insightful. Like she totally got it. I'm like, okay, all right, I guess we're right to do this. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, a couple nights ago, my wife did this and she, she's really good about teaching the kids. I mean, she's, she's by far the better half of, uh, this, relationship i mean she's a great mom she but she goes in there and like tells the kids this story like um about a boy who or he's like a teenager had a friend online and somehow the friend got him to send a picture of his genitals and then turns out this friend was actually someone trying to um you know extort money from them and so he says, Hey, if you, if you tell anybody, or if you don't send me a thousand dollars, then I'm going to share this with, you know, everyone in your family and your school. So the kid like cashes out their savings and then, and they're like, okay, actually I need 10,000. And then the kid's like, I don't have it. Kid ends up committing suicide. And this story is found out once they like open up the kid's phone and it's like awful, but here's my wife, like breaking this down in a simple way for the kids. And the main, you know, it's like, Hey, don't take any pictures of yourself and be very, you know, wary of everyone you meet online. You know, you don't want to treat everyone like a stranger. Most people are really good, but as you, you know, have built out a digital footprint and, and you're doing a lot on these devices with school, like be aware of what's out there and 
be cautious and here's what's okay to share and there's what's not okay to share, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. You'll be getting, you know, with her being five, you'll, you'll be having a lot more of those conversations coming up. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've, footprint. There, there's already, there's already been a, yeah. I mean, and again, right now is different. Like probably all parents have talked to their kids about COVID and viruses and again, death and sickness and whatever. Right. I mean, we've had all those types of conversations. Yeah. Hey, uh, last couple of questions will wrap up. As you look towards the future, tell me one thing you are optimistic about. Um, I'm talking about like on a personal note and a business perspective or just the world in general. You know, take this a lot of I want to hear, I keep it open to hear whatever comes to your mind. Okay. Um, and right now, the first thing that came to mind is, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that the you know, the, the world's gonna recover and get back to normal to a certain extent. I know a lot of, there's a lot of talk out there like, oh, you know, we're never gonna go back to how we were before and yada, yada, yada. But I think, I think human beings and people are, we're, we're resilient. And uh, I think the, you know, the, obviously things are gonna be a bit different, I think. And some of it's good, but I think overall, I think between the technology that's coming out and whatever, I think we're going to be in a in a better spot in, I'll say, a year or two than we are right now. Cool. Now, you mentioned you have uh, your own podcast and another one coming out. Remind us of the names of those and then um, tell us if there's any other you know shows or podcasts that you want to recommend to other people to check out. Sure. Um, so our, we have the, the show that's already out there right now is called mixing business with pleasure. Uh, you can find us on all the, you know, all the socials and all the podcast platforms and whatnot, iTunes, et cetera. So check us out, especially if you're interested in, if, if you're in business with your spouse or your fiance or girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Uh, or if you just want to learn about relationships and business and that kind of stuff. Uh, the show that we've got coming out, it's not live yet, so you won't find it, but it's going to be called Show Me the Proof, Get to the Point, which is a play on proof point marketing. Um, and again, that's a show where we'll be inter interviewing uh, marketing leaders about case study format kind of thing, the really uh, tactical type information and knowledge. Nice. As far as podcasts, uh, I listen to a ton of podcasts. Uh, there's uh, the Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. I love that one. I listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast. There's um, Business Wars for anybody that loves a good story that's business related. Uh, those are three that come to mind. Uh, Freakonomics is another one I love. For sure. That's a solid one. Um, what is a good cause you wish more people knew about? Good cause. I mean, we're extremely involved with the kind of the prematurity community. So I think. You know, uh, there are, you know, I used to know this by heart. I forget the statistics, but there's, you know, millions of children in the in the U.S., I believe, that are born premature every year. So and a lot of them are, unfortunately, a, a lot of parents and kids that end up in the NICU are not necessarily of the best socioeconomic backgrounds, um, which is tough, right, because they're, that's education. They're not as able to advocate for themselves, things like that. So there's organizations like the March of Dimes that we're heavily involved with. Um, 
Gabby's on their um, parent council uh, and we donate and all that fun stuff. Cool. Man, Mike, I've enjoyed talking with you. Good to get to know you a little better. And um, thank you for coming on the show. Please tell everybody where they can find you if they're looking to, um, you know, looking for some B2B marketing. And uh, if they want to find your podcast, again, remind them of the name one more time and anything else you want to share before we go. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having this conversation. It's been fun and it's an awesome platform you've got here. Uh, so we're at Proofpoint Marketing. So proofpoint.marketing, not .com, .marketing. Uh, you can find me. I mean, I'm really active on LinkedIn, not terribly active in most other social platforms. Um, it's Mike Grinberg, uh, my wife. Gabby is active pretty much everywhere. So find her there. Um, as far as our podcast, it's called Mixing Business with Pleasure. And the one that's coming out uh, in the next month, so depending on when the show airs, maybe it's already out, is going to be called Show Me the Proof, Get to the Point. Awesome. Thanks, man. I've enjoyed talking with you and hope you have a great evening. Thank you, Sean. You as well. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, please consider telling someone about the podcast. You could talk to someone or send a text message. You could even fold them a sweet origami swan that has dad conversations written inside it. Or you could share an episode on social media, maybe even write a review of the podcast on your podcasting app. If you think the podcast sucks, that's totally cool. And I want to know why. Please send me any constructive criticism, such as a new question you'd like me to ask or a request to stop saying um. Also, feel free to send unconstructive hate mail or whatever's on your mind. You can find me at Sean Radvansky on LinkedIn or DM Dad Conversations on Twitter. Whatever you do, I hope you have a great day.